It's what? It's a little small. That's a double pun or something. Little and small. All right, there we go. You guys hear me now? Hardest part about leading worship and preaching is the transition. If you've never done it, you probably don't understand. It's, it's halfway, halfway a joke. So, do you open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew? We are going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Let's see if I can get my notes out here. Uh oh. Houston, we might have a problem. Simon, you want to bring me those sermon notes? What happened? Oh, wait. No, that's one. It's two. I think that I was in a rush this morning, apparently, and I put them on here and then I closed it before it was downloading. So it's not downloaded yet. That's funny. All right. Well, we're gonna, he's going to bring me some sermon notes so that I have something to tell you. Again, you'd, you'd think that this stuff was all completely in my heart, and most of it is, but it doesn't come out of my heart when I want it to because I don't remember it because I've been doing other things. So uh, we're going to go from notes this morning. Uh, we are in a second week of a series called... Okay, good. See, look, I gave you the answer, and you still like has a hesitate. So there it is, believe, and we are looking at... Can anybody tell me what we are looking at? The Apostles' Creed, all the Catholics said, yay! Um, all the Catholic background folks are like, the Apostles' Creed, I'm familiar with that. And some of you were freaked out by it, but that's okay. Uh, because we want to, as Christians, know what we believe, right? We don't want to be tossed about by the winds and the waves of all the public opinion. We don't want to be tossed about by the other beliefs of other religions, even, um, which is a common problem in our culture today. It's called syncretism. It's where we pick and mix from lots of different religions and say, oh, I think that, you know, Buddha is fine, or Hare Krishna is fine, or this or that is fine, and we pull all these bits and pieces in, and we come up with this, basically a whole new religion is what we have. And so we want to define, and this is a, a big special word, it's called differentiation. Different, our, make ourselves differentiated, show what is different about us as believers in Christ, and has been different about us for 2,000 years from the rest of the world, so that we can know what we believe, and we can make decisions from that place, all right? And that's what we're talking about. We're in the second week. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, I really want to say thank you for being with us. It may feel a little bit like you're jumping into the middle of something, but we're just really right at the beginning of this Apostles' Creed. Last week, we talked about I believe, the difference between believing and knowing. And this week, we're going to look at God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And I got to say, I was telling the, the prayer group, we have a prayer team this, in the morning. I don't know if you know this. And when I say prayer team, that's really loose. Anybody can be a part of it. If you can talk to God at all, like Jesus, and that's all you got, that's great. You can come be a part of us. 10 minutes uh, after 10 o'clock, we meet right in the back space there and uh, we pray. And we were praying this morning and I said, I realized this week what a bad idea this sermon series was. I mean, it's, seriously, you're like, what? I'm like, you ever bit off more than you can chew? Have you ever like taken on a project and you were like, what was I thinking? Oh my goodness, this is... And when I came to this topic, so last week I preached literally on two words, right? And like just a couple of sentences from the whole Bible, like two verses out of Romans. This week I am taking a much longer sentence and a much vaster idea. In fact, I'm going to point out this morning that the idea is that God is actually really vast. So we're going to be talking about 
God the Father, and not just God the Father, God the Father the Almighty, and not just God the Father the Almighty, God the Father the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And as I started doing this, I'm like, how in the world am I supposed to do this in 30 minutes or less? Is it even possible? I don't know, but we're going to find out. So I don't know, you can make yourselves comfortable. We'll be here for a while and uh, we'll just settle in and we'll just talk about God for a while. How's that sound? I need a little bit of response from you guys. Uh, you know, anything woohoos are fine, or like I'm gonna go home and take a nap. If there's a Seahawks game on this morning, this afternoon, sometime. You know, if your crowd is a little bit sleepy, there is one surefire to wake them up around here. Go Cougs! Holy smokes! That's right. Here come. Here we come, dogs. Right. All right. Look out! My father-in-law is a Husky fan, and so he's going down. Anyway, okay, so on to my message. That was enough, enough rambling, right, Doug? Enough rambling, thank you. So last week I shared with you guys some statistics, right, on the state of belief in the U.S. evangelical church. In other words, some statistics on beliefs of churches like us all across this country. And I pointed out that there is this general confusion about who God is, right? You guys remember I talked about that? Anybody remember I talked about that? Because like we were like awake there, and then we just fell right back asleep as soon as I started talking again. Um, it's okay. The statistics show that we were very confused, and I was kind of pondering. Uh, this is crazy. So when I preach to you, I hope that you will go away from this place, and you will think about what was said, okay? Not just like pitch it, right? That was a nice in-ear, one out, in-ear, in one ear and out the other. Um, so as a way of modeling that for you, I actually think about the things I say after the fact. So when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself, and I have to go home and process what I said so that I'm like, you know, I'm like, I can't believe I said that. That was profound, or that was life-altering. I am going to have to memorize that thing that I said and, you know, get that thing in my heart. But as I was pondering what I said about these statistics, um, I realized that some of you were probably sitting there and saying, like, wow, those people are, those people are confused. Fifty percent of the church thinks that way? What's wrong with those people, right? What, I'm not, I must be a part of that other 50%. Or, or I'm not confused like those other... What churches were they even surveying if they think like that? That is insane. You know, it's really easy with statistics to say it's about those other people, right? So we can do that. Statistics can say anything you want. 80% of people agree with that. And so I wanted to take and step back and look at the statistic. It says, the statistics say that the evangelical church is confused. And some of you are going, I am not confused, and don't you dare put that on me. That's not nice of you. When we get in those circumstances and situations, we're in those sorts of places where there's fingers pointing like this, what we kind of need to do is realize that there's at least four more, or three more, because thumbs don't count as fingers, right? They're thumbs. So there's at least three more fingers pointing back at us when we say, you are like this. And I realized that I was saying, you guys are probably like this, and I realize that, guess what? I'm like this. I am like this. In fact, if I'm honest with you, if I make this confession to you, somewhere along the line, um, all through my whole life, actually, I'd say, I have been confused about who God really is. Moreover, I'm not even convinced that I really have it down now, okay? We talked about this. We said that our knowledge doesn't necessarily change our actions, right? It's the things that we believe deeply that change how we live. And if I look at how I live and how I approach God, and on some Sunday mornings when I come and the, how I live my life throughout the week, I think, wow, 
my image of who God the Father is is somehow skewed. I have this knowledge of who God is. I have this great ivory tower of theology. It's vast and shining and glowing, and I can sit down with you, and I could talk all day long about the magnificence of who God is, but then I look and I say, hey, you know what? I have this tendency. I am prone to work to earn God's favor. I am prone to put effort in and to work for God rather than to be with God. This is why I struggle so much to just be silent before the Lord. We've been talking about this, and we're going to continue doing this. At the end of the service, we're going to take a couple of minutes and just be quiet before God and listen. I struggle with that because I'm not doing anything for God. I I feel like what I know in my heart and what I know in my head are two different things. And I wrestle against this. I fight against this. It's my greatest temptation. And it's happened my whole life. It goes all the way back to my childhood. I've shared this experience with you before, but I want to—I looked at it a little bit differently as I was thinking about this this week. Um, when I was in high school, I really, really wanted to speak in tongues. Okay, we, I, I grew up in the Assemblies of God, and it was a big deal in the Assemblies of God. And But to make it worse, I had a couple of pastors who had a little bit of a skewed understanding of who the Holy Spirit was and what speaking in tongues was all about. And they taught us in high school that... In order to speak in tongues, um, or no, let me say that again. In order to be saved, you had to speak in tongues. If you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't saved, okay? So they weren't saying that speaking in tongues was made you saved. They were saying if you were spa- saved, you clearly had the Holy Spirit. And if you had the Holy Spirit, the initial evidence of that Holy Spirit is to speak in tongues. I'm not trying to throw the assemblies under the bus because they don't think this way. This is a couple of pastors that taught this. And so I was like, hey, I'm saved, I'm clearly saved, right, Jesus? You and me, we're good. We got this thing going. And so I I better start speaking in tongues pretty quick here because other people are looking at me sideways going, hey, that pastor's kid over there, he's not speaking in tongues. Why is he not speaking in tongues? He doesn't even have a Honda or a, or you know, should have bought a Honda, could have bought a Hyundai. He doesn't have those things. What's going on? And so I went forward to be prayed for, to be prayed for to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. I so wanted it. And so I went forward, and people laid heavy hands on me, and they prayed, and they prayed in tongues, and they, there was slobbering, and there was crying, and it was just like, it was this intense, hot, hot, hot time. Even in Alaska, everybody was sweating. There was like 30 people around me, and they're laying, as we used to say in the old Pentecostal circles, laying heavy hands of prayer upon me. And so, and I'm like standing there, and nothing is happening. Nothing. And I'm just like, inside that, niggling fear and doubt begins to well up. You guys know that, that that little voice that begins to speak? It's quiet at first. It's like, maybe you're not saved. Maybe Jesus doesn't love you. Maybe you're not worthy of being loved or even liked. And it got louder and louder and louder. And all I could do in that moment was to hide what was being going on in my heart and to lie and make something up. So I made up some speaking in tongues, and everybody went, yay! And they let me go, and I crawled back to my chair, and I weeped. I literally wept because I felt like I had just lied to everybody else, and God clearly didn't love me. God clearly didn't want me to have this gift. I didn't deserve it. Looking back, I realized that that was one of those moments, those life message moments that you can have that shapes how you think about the world and about God. And I realized that I probably wasn't working hard enough to earn God's favor, his gifts. And what kind of a gift is that if you got to earn it, right? It's not a gift. If like Christmas morning, somebody brings you a gift, and like, before you can have this gift, I need you to take the car to get an oil change. Okay, you know, and then you come back, and 
well, good job on that oil change, but I realize I've got the dishes to do and you need to vacuum and make your bed before you can have your gift. It's not a gift. That's a paycheck. And that's what I had started to do with God. I started to believe that God isn't pleased with me, that he doesn't want to give me anything. I don't deserve it. And so I make up something in order to look like I deserved it with everybody else. And I walked through life for a very long time after that with this understanding of God that my love of God is transactional. Familiar with that word? Transactional. It's like what you do at an ATM, right? You put something in, you get something out. Call it fair trade faith, right? It's fair trade. God's going to give me a fair trade for my work, and he's going to give me his salvation. He's going to give me his loves. He's going to give me his gifts. I was working for his love and approval. I was seeking the gift of tongues as a sign of that love. I was doing all the things I was told to do, then told that would be pleasing to God, and I was desperately hiding the fact that inside I didn't feel like I measured up. I felt inside that when I cried out to God, I received silence, that I didn't do the right things. With a God like that, you only have really two choices in life. So I'm talking about being confused about who God is. You only have two choices if that's your God, to try to measure up or to give up. And the rest of my life has been a cycle of trying to measure up to God or just giving up and walking away. Occasionally, it's punctuated with these moments where I actually discover the God of the Bible. And that is the beauty of Christianity. It's the beauty of our Father who longs so much to have a right relationship with us that he pursues us over and over again. He chases after us. He follows us. And he keeps revealing himself to us. And so I thank God that this morning when I stand here before you, even though I struggle to not work for God but to be with God, that I know in my heart that God isn't out for my work. He's out for my heart. And he is out for your heart. I found that the God of the Father, the one revealed in the Bible, the one that the creed reflects to us, is very radically different than the God that I understood as a child. He is a God who is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely just. He is infinitely righteous. He is absolutely terrifying. And he is infinitely intimate. He is so completely personal. He is so merciful. He is so kind. He is so full of love for you that he would descend from heaven and become a man and walk amongst us. Do you know who introduced me to the Father of heaven? Jesus. Immediately after speaking in that whole speaking in tongues incident, I went back, I crawled back to my little pew. We had pews then. I don't know why they call them pew. I think it's if you lay on them, you go, oh, pew. Um, I like laid down on this pew. I was exhausted. I was emotionally drained. I was just like, and in that moment, it was like everything went hazy. And out of the midst in my vision comes this image of a man walking toward me. And it was Jesus. And how do I know it was Jesus? I'm like, he didn't look like the whole Anglican Jesus. He was all pretty. It was just this man kind of, not script, but when he wrapped his arms around me, I couldn't move. I couldn't experience anything but pure love. And despite that moment, I was still shaped inside, but that man in that moment introduced me to the God of heaven and led me on a journey to know who he is. And that is the man that I'm going to bring us actually to to talk about God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. If God the Father, maker of heaven and earth is a person and is knowable, who better to introduce us to him than Jesus, his son, right? Who better to introduce us than Jesus, his son? And Jesus reveals to us what he thinks about God the Father by his prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and uh, 
verses 9 and forward. And let's read this out loud together. You are going to be very familiar with it. Some of you are going to like, just start reciting it, and there's going to be this point where there's this craziness because we're all going to use different words, but that's okay. So we're just going to say it out loud together. Ready? Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's start at the top of this little prayer here. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Jesus reveals God as our Father. Now, it wasn't uncommon in first century uh, Rome, first century ancient Near East is the big historical term, but in the, the, the area around Israel at that time, and even into the southern parts down to Egypt and all the way north into Rome, it wasn't uncommon at that time to refer to God as your father. The Greeks started it. They started talking about Zeus. You guys know who Zeus is? How many of you love Greek mythology and Greek mythological stories? How many of you like fiction based on Greek mythological stories? Yeah, that's awesome. And you know what they do with those? It's great. They take those ideas of what the Greeks understood as God and they translate them into our world today. And so when you're reading those books, start asking yourself, how, does, how do these gods line up in here? How do they measure up to the God of the Bible? Just think about that as you're going. So Zeus, he wasn't exactly the sort of guy you would like to call dad, right? Zeus was always walking around. His favorite tool was a lightning bolt, right? And so he walks around in whatever the Greek version of heaven is. I've forgotten the word. It's a place. Olympus. There it is. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, you guys are speaking in tongues all of a sudden. I was like, somebody interpret for me. Um, So walking around with his lightning bolt in Olympus, and he's watching his children who he created, and he's just waiting for us to blow it, right? And it's zap! We got it. going to get you. That's the God that the Greeks knew. And then the Romans later translated that, and they said, okay, uh, God's son, Zeus's son, is actually the emperor, right? That's the emperor of Rome, and now becomes this cult where we worship the emperor of Rome, a man, as a god, and we call him father. We call him God our father. Now imagine what kind of father the emperor of Rome is. Imagine what kind of father Nero, the emperor of Rome, is, right? He liked to have garden parties and set people on fire and, and to light his party. Yay! What kind of a father is that? The father that Jesus reveals here, again, it's not uncommon to call God father. So nobody was like, but when he said, God is Abba, because that's the word that is used in this this Greek area here. It says, God, our Abba. He reveals God as dad. He reveals God as an everyday, ordinary dad that you can hang out with that is is loving and kind and, and generous. He's completely different Zeus. Zeus isn't the kind of dad you want, but Jesus introduces us to God, the Abba, the dad who loves you. Jesus speaks to God with tenderness of a son to a father. It's this incredibly personal relationship between Jesus and God. And I want you to notice this. The whole text that we read this morning started with these three three words. (laughs) Pray like this. Jesus doesn't just say, do what I do. He says, I want to introduce you to the guy I'm praying to. I want to introduce you to the God of the universe. He's my dad. Pray. You pray like this. Pray to your dad in heaven. Not pray to Zeus. Not pray to some all-powerful, capricious God who is waiting to smash you. You pray to this intimate, 
personal, loving God. This prayer would be absolutely different, however, if it said, now pray like this, our dad who art in the living room, hallowed be your name. I know my kids do this sometimes in the house. They're in their rooms and they think about their dad in the living room, hallowed be his name. It doesn't say that. He says, our father, dad, who is where? In heaven. The location of this father is transcendent. It is totally different than the fathers of this world. So now Jesus differentiates him again. First, he says, he's not like Zeus. He's not like the emperor of Rome. He is your dad. He is your intimate, loving father. And yet, he is also not in the living room. He is in heaven. He is in this other place. Back in the 60s, or 60s, yeah, if you're old enough to remember this. I am not old enough to remember this. I had to read about it. Um, but back in the day, some of you are going, groan, he just called me old. Um, back in the day, when we first started the space race, did you know the Russians were the first people into, into space, right? Right? They spent Sputnik, and it was beep, 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 beep. When we watched a show about this yesterday, it was like, well, kids are like, why is it so intimidating, this satellite going around the world? I don't know. I'm like, they're watching us. And then they sent a man into outer space, right? Yuri Gagarin. And he goes up into outer space, and he comes back down to the earth, and he says this. This is his first thing that he says. You know, <laughs> compare him to Neil Armstrong, right? One, one small step for mankind, one giant leap for man, uh, vice versa, whatever. <laughs> you guys get the point. Everybody listening at home online is going to get the point. Uh, he says this. This is what Yuri Gagarin says. I've made it into heaven, and God is not there. Yeah, because orbit isn't heaven, right? I mean, you're smashed into a little space capsule with just a little bit of air. Like, you can't survive there. That's not heaven. That is not heaven. If our God was so small that he had to be contained by his creation, he would be a small God indeed. But God that Jesus reveals is a God who stands out of creation, who stands and is so vast that he had to, I love this, the, the ancient uh, Jews in the Talmud, they have this thing that they write, where rabbis kind of write some ideas about who they think God is based on the scripture, and one of them wrote this idea. He said that God at creation literally had to suck in his gut to make space for us because he filled everything. This is the God that Jesus is introducing us to, the God who is so vast that he creates the heavens but lives in heaven which is transcendent and outside of time and outside of history. This is the God that we honor. This is the God that we worship. This is the God who rules over this whole earth. Not our Father in the living room. Not the Father who might be in orbit. But the God, the creator of heaven and earth. It's our Father, our Dad, but His realm and His rule is epic in its size and its scope. It's infinite and there is nothing that He cannot do. Look where the text goes next. Our Father in heaven, he says, hallowed be your name. Here's another example of our Father being infinitely powerful. Okay, we started with really personal. He's our dad, and now we've gone to infinitely powerful. He is in heaven, and it says, hallowed be your name. Our Father is holy. That's a word churches throw around all the time, right? We sing, holy, holy, holy. You read it in Revelation, and it, like, there's even this one part in Revelation that kind of makes it sound like that's all we're ever going to do when we go to heaven, right? We're just going to stand around singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And that sounds really, really boring. And then we lose this sense of what holy even means. Holy means other. 
means completely different, completely set apart. It is completely differentiated. It is not you, it is not me, it is him, and him alone, and there is none like him. He is holy. There's a type of fear of this majesty of who God is that comes when we say hallowed or holy is your name. Let me explain it this way. Uh, The bigger the mammal, the greater the fear in your heart. Okay? Let me say that again because you're going to go, what in the world does that even mean? The greater, the bigger the mammal, the bigger the fear in your heart. Now let's say you go out snorkeling. Anybody with me? Warm waters. How many of you are just like relaxing as we even think about it? You vision the calm blue ocean and you're out there and you're just relaxed and you're swimming and you're swimming along and you see, you see Nemo, right? You guys see Nemo and he like swims up to your basket. You're like, oh, it's Nemo. He's so cute and ah. And then you're like swimming along and suddenly you see like a four foot eel, okay? Four foot moray eel with that When you see Nemo, your heart isn't afraid. You're like, whatever, it's so cute, I'm bigger than it. You see an eel, you're like, that thing is not quite as big as me, but it's definitely dangerous. But you see a whale, you have a fear and an awe and a wonder. You, you like, it's the most amazing experience of your life. You come home from vacation, and what do you do? You tell, you go like, Audrey, let's go to coffee, I gotta tell you about this thing. And you go, I saw a whale. And it was massive, and it swam past me, and I felt the, the, the water like I pushed away, and it was just scary, and I was terrified, and the thing was going to suck me into its mouth, and I was going to be Jonah, and it was like amazing, and it's so exciting. But I'm scared. I am in awe. Now, if we feel that way about a mammal, right, a whale, how much more is the experience of fear and awe and wonder in our heart if we encounter the living God of the universe who created all that we know from the greatest planets, the black holes, the expanse of the universe, all the way down to the tiniest molecules in existence, quarks and even smaller, and the things that hold it all together, and magnetic fields and sunrises and sunsets and and biology. And sometimes the high schoolers are going, why did God create biology? I don't know, but it all works together and it's fantastically amazing. If you encounter the God who created that, how much greater would the fear in your heart be. That's what we mean when we say to fear the Lord. To be blown away in awe and in wonder about the immensity and the normity and the power and the awe-inspiring wonder of the infinite God of the universe. That's why the Old Testament says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And that's such a cultural thing today. I mean, we, we text it, OMG, right? When we, we put it on t-shirts. It's like, like the latest pajama trend for sixth grade girls. It says, OMG, right on the front of it, and hashtag, and, you know, OMG. And if you don't know what OMG means, and you're, like, not into the whole texting thing, it means, oh, my God. And it's, like, it's right where it starts. We start saying it all the time. It's a common expletive. Like, you, oh, my God, a car just cut me off. Oh, my God, my friend got a new shirt. Oh, my God, this pizza is amazing. I love it. And we say that in a funny, light way, but i got to say, that is the name of something that is so vastly greater than a whale. We shouldn't take it lightly. It's not okay for Christians to just go throwing it around. We need to think about what we say and who we fear because his name is holy. 
from there, this verse goes like this. It says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father is a king. Now, this is going to take a minute to unpack, and it's a really massive, massive, massive theological idea that is written throughout the whole Bible. So I'm going to have to give it to you really, really fast. And if you're from another culture and you speak another language, you might struggle with this, and I apologize that we can talk about it a lot after the fact. But here it goes. It goes like this. The kingdom of God is a concept throughout the Scripture, and what it means, it's, it's this rule and reign of God the Father on earth. It began when Jesus was born. He announced the coming of the kingdom of God. And his whole life was an explanation of what the kingdom of God looks like here. Okay, so we have borders around our country, right? And we're going to have walls and stuff. So we clearly know where where the kingdom of the United States versus the kingdom of Mexico or Canada or the kingdom of the Atlantic Ocean begins and ends. So God says, I'm going to have a kingdom. I'm going to have a space where I rule and reign. And that space here on this earth is going to look like this. So Jesus goes around, and God says, guess what? In my kingdom, there will be no hunger. And so, boom, Jesus feeds thousands of people with just a couple of pieces of fish and a couple of pieces of bread. God says, in my kingdom, there will be no sickness. Boom, Jesus lays his hands and heals the deaf. He lays his hands on it, and the blind can see again. And craziest of all, boom, he lays his hands on a dead person, and they walk again. Not only is it not just sickness, but it's death. In God's kingdom is the end of death. The kingdom here and now is alive and growing. It was born the day Jesus was born, and it was passed on to his disciples, you and me, through the apostles, through thousands of generations, or actually like 80 generations, I counted this out, like 80 generations of people, to us, the kingdom of God, here and now. The atmosphere is changing now, for the Spirit of the Lord is here. The evidence is all around. The Spirit of the Lord is... If you've been healed of your sin, the Spirit of the Lord is here and God's kingdom is alive in you. If you've seen somebody healed of sickness, the Spirit of the Lord is here and God's kingdom is alive in them and in you. It is growing. It is expanding. And someday, the kingdom of God will be... The word is consummated. It's a great big theological word. It will come to completion when Jesus returns. And it's in that time that Jesus says, or Revelation says this about the kingdom of God on earth, that because its rule and reign will be so complete and so perfect that the lion will lay down with the lamb. And there's this whole metaphor thing going on there, but I think there's also something very practical and very real, that the kingdom of God is actually going to bring peace to all the animals. Dogs and cats aren't going to fight anymore because that enmity is gone because God's peace is here. And then it says this, it says, the deserts will bloom the deserts will bloom. Now, I know some of you guys are gardeners, right? How many gardeners in the house we got? Yeah, I'll, I'll. How many of you like to pretend to be a gardener? I'm raising my hand onto that. I love the idea of gardening, but I'd hate the work, okay? You plant tomatoes in the spring, right? And you're out there, and you're like watering them, and you're osmocoding them. See, I know words for gardening. And you put all the soil stuff in there, and manure, and you're tending them, and you like every night you go out and you speak quietly and softly to your tomatoes and you're like you're so beautiful you're gonna make the best tomatoes ever and you know so your tomato plant's got the best um, sense of itself and it's so wonderful and happy and and then and then it produces this little green tomato like you could do it little guy keep going and you you grow this tomato and at the end of the summer you come and you've got the like you take it to the fair and everybody else just leaves right because you've got this tomato they're like oh i'm going home with my green tomatoes so you said and you're so proud of it let me see you make the desert bloom okay we, we, we pride ourselves in our ability to do this, but none of us could ever do that. 
the infinite power of God and his kingdom is going to set everything right. And who but God alone could say, you know what? Death, that's it. You're done. Game over for death. Death is dead. Who can kill death? Only God. Only God. All sickness, all disease, all death, all suffering, all deserts, all loneliness, it's going to be righted. And the scripture says that all creation is groaning and waiting for the day that the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. It's a pretty mighty God. God the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now it moves from revealing this intense power of God, though, to revealing God as somebody, again, intensely, wholly personal. He says to his Father, Jesus says this to God, his Father, give us today our daily bread. And when he says that, he's not saying, God, give me everything I want. God, give me everything. God, I need my daily bread. And today my bread needs to be a steak and a salad, and it needs to be mashed potatoes. And then afterward, I need to go out of this restaurant and step into my new Porsche that you have placed out there for me. And when I go home, let it be to my mansion that is up on the hill, because I've got a mansion just over the hilltop on the Palouse, and I live in my giant mansion. And he's not asking for all the things he wants. He's not asking to be the best, brightest, goodest, goodest looking, goodest looking. He's not asking for the wealth or riches. He says, I need my daily bread. God is going to give you what you need. Not just what you want, but what you need. I'm going to say something hard. It might even bother some of you. Because I'm going to point my, poke a little finger into parenting a little bit here. It is only a very selfish father who gives their child everything that they want. Most of us aren't this way, but we see it. We have selfish children with selfish desires because it's natural for human beings, right? I'm not like putting you kids down. I'm a selfish human with selfish desires. And we're born that way. We come out wanting something and we scream until we get it, right? And it doesn't really stop. We just learn to use words. Some of us are even better at it as adults than we were as babies. It's kind of amazing. And kids' desires, as they're forming, as they're growing, often their desires are immature. They don't know yet what they need. They just know what they want. And when fathers say, oh, kids can have whatever they want, it actually harms them. God is the sort of father who says no. Okay, I've been taught that children really only need two things, and I try to make, make sure to say this every day. Okay, every day I try to say these two things. They need to hear, I love you. So every night before they go to bed, I say, I love you, even if I'm sometimes like, oh, I love you. And I do. I mean, from the deep depths of my heart. And the other one is much easier to say, no. <laughs> they need to hear no and I love you, every single child. God is the sort of father who will say no to us. Because he knows if he doesn't say no to us, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be consequences in your relationships. There's going to be consequences in your marriage. There's going to be consequences in your neighborhood. There's going to be consequences in your family, your children. There's going to be consequences between husbands and wives. It doesn't matter, male or female. If we break the commands of the Lord, if we do not follow in his will and ways, if we choose to selfishly follow what we want, there will be consequences and there will be suffering. And we have a father who is so awesomely loving and completely forgiving that he says no and still chooses to be in relationship with us. 
He says no and still chooses to follow along with us. This text is so amazingly personal. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I'm not going to give you everything you want, but I'm going to give you what you need. In all those places where I have selfishly followed my own way, God, forgive me. How many of you learned this word debts as trespasses? Trespassers, raise your hands, trespassers. How many of you sins, sins, everybody sins, all right? All right, you know what's really cool in the Greek, this word where we translate it as sins or trespasses or debts? It's all the same thing. They mean all of those things. Forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses. The healing of God is so powerful. When you get to know him, when you stand in his presence, when you are lost in the awe and wonder, the healing power of that God who loves you, it forgives your debts. It forgives your sins. It forgives your trespasses. It forgives the things that you've done willfully, the sins of will, I chose to do this. It, it forgives your sins of omission. I didn't, I didn't do that, you know, or I should have done that, but I didn't do that. It forgives the things that you didn't know that you did that were wrong, but yet they violated God. They violated your relationships. They hurt people around you. God's forgiveness and healing is so powerful that it covers all of that. And not only that, but when you get in touch with that healing, when you get in touch with that relationship, it begins to transform your relationships around you. Suddenly, the power of God comes alive in the relationships around you. God steps right in the middle of your mess. He is infinitely powerful, infinitely holy, infinitely just, absolutely terrifying, and completely personal, completely loving, completely kind, completely forgiving, and completely longing to heal every brokenness in your life. This ends with this. Our Father protects us. He says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, this is so personal. Because for each one of us, the things that are going to get us, are going to trip us up in life are different, right? You may have been a heroin addict 20 years ago. And if some guy walks up to the street to you and is like offers you heroin, you feel this tug in your heart, right? Some guy walks up on the street to me with a, a thing of heroin, I'm going to be like, what is that? Why are you offering me tinfoil? Or I don't know, even know what it comes in. Is it in Tupperware? I don't know. I think... And heroin just doesn't hold anything for me, Right? But if somebody comes around and says, man, that was a good sermon, inside the back of my mind, pride begins to grow, right? Yeah, pastors don't struggle with sin. We struggle with pride, which is a sin. You know, we, this is what a pastor is. You just take a prideful person and put them on stage. You know, that's what, that's what it is. I struggle with pride. I, I do. I don't struggle with heroin. Thank God I don't struggle with heroin. And all of you are thinking, thank God too. I'd rather you struggle with pride than heroin because that would just be kind of crazy. No, I don't with that either. I, nicotine, uh, caffeine. Okay, well, let's get honest. My name is Jamie. Caffeine. I love caffeine. Me and caffeine. Anyway, back to this. Back to God, not caffeine. If you've ever sinned, I imagine you're just like me. And you have. I don't want to point fingers at you because I'm pointing at me, right? And point, so look, if I point at me, I've got three fingers pointing back at you. If you've ever sinned, and I bet you have, because none of us have not, our Father is so faithful that not only does he forgive us, but he provides a way out. He provides a way out. And you know what? Sometimes it's a painful way. Sometimes it's not the way we want to go. 
Sometimes it's not the direction we want to go. Sometimes it means confession. Sometimes it means being honest. But God always, always, always will provide a way out because he's your dad. Because your dad doesn't want to see you fall. Because your dad doesn't want to see you fail. Because your dad doesn't want to see you addicted and watching your relationships be broken over and over again. Because your dad doesn't want to see you wander away from him and be estranged like the prodigal son. Because he is standing at the edge of the hilltop with his binoculars every day watching for you to come home. Because your dad loves you. He will provide a way out. Man, if I had time, I'd just go on and on and on about God. It's kind of what I do, right? I get paid to go on and on about God week after week and to teach you and to tell you about this God that I love. But I promised you that I would give you time to listen to God. I would give you time to sit in his presence, to hear what he might be saying to you, not with my voice. I feel like this sermon is just just the bare bones introduction to who the God who created heaven and earth could be and is. But I would know this one thing about this vast, infinite God of the universe. He's infinitely powerful. He's infinitely personal. We have to hold both of them. And we have to hold on to them with all of our heart because if we let go of this infinitely powerful God, we've got God as our buddy who doesn't care what we do. And if we let go of God is our dad, and we just hold on to this God of the universe who is terrifying, we will always approach in fear, and we will slink from place to place, always waiting for that lightning bolt to come. If we don't hold on to both of those, then we fail as Christians, because that is not the Christian God. And in this moment, this infinite God, who is vast and powerful and terrifying, who is your dad and who loves you and wants to know you, is infinitely personal, wants to be with you right now. And not just in a general way. He wants to be with you in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your illness, in the midst of your disease, in the midst of your sickness. He wants to sit with you. And it might just be a hug. It may just be his arms wrapped around your shoulders. It might be the pouring out of a gift. It might be his spirit's presence falling on you in a way that you've never imagined before. And suddenly you're doing and saying things that you couldn't believe possible because he's empowered something in you. It may just be to challenge your idea of who God is and say, hey, just rest. Just rest for a minute. You've been working for me for so long. Just be with me. If you're a believer, we're going to take this moment, we're going to stop and listen to what God's saying. What he's saying to you personally about who he is. Because as A.W. Tozer said, and I shared this last week, what you think when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If you're not a believer... You're just exploring, you're just curious, you're just wondering who this God is. I want to challenge you to stop and listen to your own heart. For the next two minutes, we're going to do this. Who is God to you? Is he Zeus? Is he Apollo? Is he some African God? Is he, I don't know. What is he like? Is he kind? Is he just? Is he merciful? Is he flippant? Does he not care what happens? Who is God to you? We're going to take, um, I'm going to give you one full minute to think about this, and then we're going to uh, conclude with a song. So that minute of silence, let's take it and begin now.